We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hey friends, and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 138. Our guest today is a CDI Grand Prix rider who has a successful career both in bringing horses through the levels from breaking through the FEI and rehabbing problem horses. She's a committed teacher, patient trainer, and her work is defined by her genuine affection for horses. Ready to hear her story? Let's hear from our guest today, Allison Cavey. Um, Well, I would love to get right to it, how um, you kind of took the winding road to get you to the amazing spot you're at today. But first, I would love to hear about how you first kind of got into the equestrian world. So when I was a small child, I lived in rural upstate New York, and the kid down the road had a horse. She was an older kid, and I was three, and I idolized her, as little girls often will with an older girl, you know, follow them around and everything. And I started asking my parents for riding lessons. And my mother, being a smart parent, said, well, sure, if you wash your face every night for a year without complaining, you can have (laughs) riding lessons. And she says she should have known she was in trouble then because I did. (laughs) Love it. Love it. Got to do what you got to (laughs) do. Yeah, exactly. So at four, I started riding at a wonderful barn in Jamesville, New York, still open called Tanglewood Farms. And I just had the best kind of start that a kid could have. Wonderful lesson program, all different kinds of lesson horses, um, and very good foundation and just good basic riding, really good horse care. And more importantly, I think than anything else, that the love of horses should motivate you every day and that there's no place for anything but passion and understanding compassion and understanding Mm -hmm. and the way that you engage with your horses, that if you have a temper, you can take it outside, but you may not ever take it out on a horse. Hmm. Yeah. That's, that's definitely something that I feel like, um, within the industry, it's so special and so important that especially in those, you know, kind of beginning phases of riding that that's totally at the core because, um, it happened. I mean, frustration and, and taking maybe something that's happening completely unrelated to riding and bringing it into your riding. Um, it can happen and it's just not healthy for your relationship with your horse and your horse in general. So that's a good point. Absolutely. I was so fortunate to have such a wonderful place to both to learn to ride and to interact with horses and also to grow up. That was the barn that I mm-hmm. stayed in all the way through high school. And, um, I still visit when I go home to see my dad. So it's really okay. a quite amazing place. My mom and I rode there together and it was really just a terrific place to start riding and start a lifelong love for horses. Totally. So as you were kind of learning and growing and making this more and more uh, a part of your life, was there like a turning point or a, a moment in time where you were, you know, taking lessons and loving it and then at one point being like, I want to do this for the rest of my life. I want to be a professional. I want to like show a ton. Was there some type of pivotal moment for you? You know, it was very interesting. It's a good question. When I was at university, I was at Cornell and I was working for a barn, breaking a lot of young horses and riding young horses for the woman who owned it, Jan Jacobson. She bred trick And I was 
I graduated a year early from Cornell and I went to Young Riders with my horse and I came back and I had I had made a decision to become a working student instead of going straight on to graduate school. And I went to be a working student thinking that I was going to be a professional at least for some period of time and that I would make later life decisions later. And um, I instead returned to Cornell as a research assistant. After three months, I sold my young rider horse. I brought the young horse that I brought with me back to Ithaca and I was a research assistant and I applied to PhD programs. Wow. I then okay. went on to graduate school yeah. and was a professional simultaneously because I turned 21 my first year in graduate school. Okay. And I was already riding other people's horses at the new barn where I had moved to in um, Maryland. And I realized I wanted to do both things. Mm-hmm. I am very committed to academic work. And I believe for myself that the balance between these two kinds of research, because I do think both of them are these long lasting commitments to learning more. And essentially every book I write for my university job is matched by a horse I finished to Grand Prix. Um, and I learned so much in both worlds that I, I cannot imagine myself doing just one. I have at different times in my life done one more than the other because I needed to get tenure or, or we had a horse that was needing more time or something like that. But in truth, I balance them pretty much equally. <laughs> I work wow. a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Let's like, let's talk logistics about that because how do you find enough hours in the day to do Like, what is that? What does a normal day or week look like for you for being able to pack all of that in? Well, so I want to clarify that Florida is a little bit unusual, right? Because we have all of January off from teaching. It's a research month. It's a very easy month for academics. We tend to get a lot of our research and writing done. Mm -hmm. Um, In a non-COVID year, in the spring, I teach entirely online and I fly home when I need to for meetings. Okay. In a COVID year, of course, I'm not flying home, but there's quite a lot of time on Zoom, you know, the same meetings that we would be having at work I'm having now here. This year, I did not bring a working student down. So I'm doing all the horse care myself. Okay. Um, I brought down eight and then one went off to a lease relatively quickly. So now I have seven. I get up at three. Um, I work, I do academic work for a couple of hours and I start the barn at 530. Hmm. Um, So everybody gets fed, then they go out and I do all the stalls and then bring them in, ride them. And then throughout the day, I have to cope with email, you know, meetings with students, meetings with faculty, whatever. And I usually finish the barn I mean, I, I wish I could lie and tell you I had a perfect life at end of the five. <laughs> the horses get fed around five. Um, I'm usually done most nights between seven and seven thirty, um, except Mondays when I teach my seminar. And last night I had a graduate student from six thirty to eight. So, you know, wow. I just balance everything. Um, no week is the same, and. I guess that's it. I just yeah. try to balance things. That's it. That's all it is, you know, just working yeah. and riding all the time. That's amazing. And I mean, I think that what's really wonderful and unique in your case is that, like you were saying before, you really do love both aspects of your life as far as riding and your career that that has to help, you know, get through some harder days knowing that, 
you know, you're really doing things that you're passionate about. For sure. I'm an extremely fortunate person because I get to do two things that I love and both of them include teaching and teaching is very important to me. I think it's really an evangelical thing (laughs) for some university professors. We really think that if you can teach well, you can change someone's life. And I've learned to think that in the writing as well, that being a good teacher and a good steward of horsemanship means that you care about the horses that you take care of and the people with whom you interact in the ring. And I try very hard to teach well in in both contexts. Definitely. With this year being a little bit different that you are, you did not bring a working student and you are doing, you know, the day-to-day work yourself. How does that compare for you as far as being able to focus like when you're showing or riding or having enough energy to be able to show and ride versus, you know, doing all of that work yourself, but then you're also spending more quality time with the horses? Kind of how does that kind of balance for you? So uh, I guess I should clarify when I have working students, I still do a lot of the stalls and a yeah. lot of the care just because it's not, I, I'm a very hands-on person <laughs> and I like to do the care of the horses. I like to groom them. I'm the one who does their legs at night. I, mm-hmm. I think I haven't missed a night check except when I was teaching at home. I, I, of course I teach in the city. So yeah. there are nights if I'm teaching from six 30 to eight 30 that I miss night check because I don't get home till 11. Sure. But other than that, I think I haven't missed a night check in years. Wow. I really like to come up and talk to the horses at night and take care of them. I am very committed to them believing that I care for them as creatures, as beings, rather than just as machines that need to do something for me in the ring. Right. And I like them. I I really just like being the last person to see them at night and tuck them in and the first person to see them in the morning. So yeah, I mean, sure, you get tired, but (laughs) I was brought up by very ambitious people. So I, I think that working hard is something that I was taught to value and, and really sort of from the beginning, both of my parents modeled that if you wanted to do something, you should just go do it. And they did that. My dad was a, is a, he's now a retired physician, but, and also skied and did ski coaching at a very high level throughout my entire childhood. He played tennis very uh, seriously. My mother was one of the few women in pediatric cardiology which is incredibly demanding specialty. And so they modeled for me that if you love what you do, it doesn't matter if you do it 16 hours a day. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, how I was raised. And I really am happy doing it like this. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. What would you say is an area of the industry that you are passionate about that you feel like the rest of the equestrian community either just doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk that much about? Well, I guess I would call it the horse, the broken horse phenomenon. I get quite a lot of horses into fix, putting fix in quotes here. Sure. This one rears. I'm sort of known as the queen of rearing mares. I get a lot of (laughs) mares who rear. This one rears. It won't do its job. He doesn't like leg yield. Hmm. Won't jump anymore. Can you make it a dressage horse? Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of these horses where people sort of treat them like they're disposable. Hmm. And of course, there are issues, soundness issues sometimes, and also... Horses are not all suited to a particular job. There's nothing wrong with, you know, a horse who maybe did fine in the three foot hunters, but then he comes to the three, three and it's too much of a challenge and the Mm. owner wants to move on to the low AOs. Sure. 
And maybe that horse is a really good mover and he's got exactly the right attitude and he can either go on and be a three foot hunter for his career, or he can come to my ring and I'd be very happy to teach him, you know, most hunters can easily transfer over to second mm-hmm. and even third level dressage. Wow. Okay. So I'm, I'm really happy to do that job, but I also see a lot of horses who are pressured unfairly and they wind up with behavioral problems that are the reflection of unkind training. And by unkind, I mean unclear. Horses are pretty much capable of doing what we want when we say very clearly what that is. Mm-hmm. And when you leave the door open for them to do it and quietly close the other doors. Yeah. A lot of the horses that I've had come in as behavioral problems, they either never had those doors closed politely and then all the doors were closed at once. Mm. So they felt trapped, right? You get a lot of indulgence, 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 bad horse. Mm-hmm. Or you have a horse who, who has been driven very hard and much like any creature who's held to a level of expectation that their body and their mind cannot withstand, those horses act out. And I think it's really, I see a lot of this in the young horse classes in dressage. Oh, he just won't. He doesn't want to do the changes. He won't be able to do the six-year-olds. Well, okay. Maybe he's not ready to do the changes because in the five-year-olds, you cranked his neck to the inside in the counter canter. Mm -hmm. He didn't get the outside hind leg to engage. And now he does not have a canter anymore. Mm. So for me, that's, it's too bad. And then I also see those horses, unfortunately, sometimes get sold to really inappropriate homes. Sure. And then they wind up, you know, I I just think it's a shame because the minute we commodified horses, we took on an extra ethical obligation to them. Mm -hmm. And that ethical obligation is that we treat them with extra comprehension of what we ask and require. Mm -hmm. And I don't always see that uh, bargain respected in the way we treat them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a very unique discipline. It's a very unique sport in that sense and lifestyle with kind of having this big aspect to the sport being, these are living, breathing things that need to be seen and heard and cared for. And a lot of times that communication, not always intentional, but it just doesn't get to the horse the way that it should be. Yeah. And then because we make money, right? I mean, the truth is we make money by selling them. Every time you sell a horse, you get a commission. Every time a client buys a horse, you get a commission. So the ethical threshold for professionals is very high. It should be very high. We need to be cognizant of our responsibilities to the clients. And I, for me, the horses are the clients too. Mm -hmm. What would you say is a way that we as you know as professionals could start either like educating the space or helping or where do you see the industry being able to turn more often toward that ethical standard of really making sure that the the horse's needs are coming to the forefront of the of any situation like that you know it's interesting you ask the question that way i see amateurs really wanting to do right by their horses a lot uh-huh. of the time And the mistakes that they make are often just mistakes of 
indulgence. Sure. Oh, Lammy doesn't like to canter on the left lead. So Lammy doesn't canter on the left lead. <laughs> no, that's what professionals are for, right? We right. hold the line so that the amateurs can make mistakes and have sometimes a relationship that for me is maybe a little too much like a pet mm. um, rather than a working partner. Yep. But in terms of what professionals need to do, I think it's that you always have to look at your conflicts of interest. If your motivation with any horse is purely financial, I think you need to step away. Hmm. If you don't want to help that horse, whether it's to find a new home or to learn a shoulder in, because you really dislike the horse for some reason, you don't get along, it's physically painful for you to ride the horse. I think it's best to encourage the client to take the horse somewhere else. Yeah. And I understand that that is a financial risk, Mm -hmm. but I also think it's worth losing that month's training board because if you are honest with yourself, you'll do a better job with the horses you have. Right. Yep. And and not only will it be beneficial for the horse or that horse and amateur rider for them and their relationship and their, their career, but it will also be beneficial for that professional's career in the long run that they are being honest with their clients and having that, you know, standard of ethics. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's very important to treat our amateur clients as what they are, smart, competent adults. Mm. who deserve the truth. It doesn't mean you have to be nasty about the truth. You don't have to say this horse is not qualified to do the job you want to do. You can say, this is a lovely horse and he has a big heart and he's taken you as far as he can. Right. Yeah. And then you can offer the client some alternatives. You can keep him and work at the level where he is comfortable. We can try to find him a lease so he stays in the barn. Or you can decide that you want to sell him and we can try to find you a more suitable horse for the goals you have outlined. Mm-hmm. There are always options. But I think we'll do better as a profession if we are honest with our clients and talk through those options with the horse's interests at the front always of our communication. Totally. Yeah, I love that. Switching gears a bit because I have a question for you listening. How much time and money do you spend on your horse's training and maintenance versus the time and money spent on your personal training and maintenance to enhance your ability as a rider? This is where Athlete EQ comes in. Athlete EQ is a complete fitness and health concept specialized for equestrian athletes. Training to strengthen the abilities as a rider needs to be specific and efficient. It needs to be long-term and it needs to be adjusted over time as we develop in the sport together with our horses. The health and fitness of the rider should be considered just as often as the health and fitness of the horse because it's a true team sport and it really helps to have the health and fitness of both horse and rider in check. My girl Nina from Athlete EQ has a deep understanding of the equestrian sport. She is actually also an equine nutritionist and works with some of the world's leading sport veterinarians. She also works with some top riders on their fitness and nutrition, like Jessica Springsteen, Emily Moffat, and Adrian Sternlicht. She also works with some top riders specifically on their equine nutrition, like Michael and John Whitaker's horses and Nelson and Rodrigo Pessoa's horses. I'm telling you, this is an incredible program, and I am so excited for Nina to come on the podcast very soon, so be on the lookout for her episode. But for now, take a look at our website at athleteeq.eu, that's A-T- 
athleteq.eu for more information. Thank you so much, Athlete EQ. All right, let's go back to the episode. Going back a little bit to your story, as you were becoming a young professional in the sport, coming from being a junior rider to professional, what were some of the you know, high points that stick out in your, in your head as, you know, great memories through that transition. And what were some challenges that you faced making that transition and kind of measuring up to expectations and and all of that, that goes with the junior to professional status? So I think in dressage, particularly, you know, I'm like 140, right? So I went to Young Riders <laughs> in 97 and 98. We didn't have junior careers back then. I found out about Young Riders because my mom read about it in Chronicle of the Horse. And we were talking, as we did when I was in university, about once a week. And she said, I just read about this thing called Young Riders. I think you should try to do that. Oh, I love it. And I I had outgrown, physically outgrown. And also in terms of my ability and ambition, my Morgan that I brought to college. And so I made a, a... deal that I, if I could uh, find a suitable horse for a, about a year's tuition, I could trade a year's tuition for a horse. And so we found my trainer, Janet, I found this horse who had a serious bolting problem and a late change on one side and brought him home and fixed the bolting problem and moved on. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's um, and, and did go to Young Riders, but there was no such thing then as a junior career, the way there was in the hunters. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, now I do see more of these juniors having a junior career in dressage, but I still think it's quite different. The serious junior riders in the hunters, as far as I can tell, are being groomed to be good professionals. Sure. They are jumping huge jumps. They're in the hunter ring. They're in the jumper ring. They're in the equitation rings. They're mm-hmm. learning all the facets of the, of that world not just as riders, but also as catch riders, as schooling riders, or, you know, sort of assistant trainers in many cases. Mm -hmm. And they are learning the ins and outs of horse care, whether they're doing the horse care themselves, they know what it should look like. Right. Our juniors are a little bit different. Uh, (laughs) Some of them are doing a lot of horse care and don't have great help at all. Some of them have a huge amount of support financial support and barn support and are pretty hands off and don't know anything at all about how the horses should be cared for or ridden or anything. And I think there's a little bit of a mythology in, in the hunter world that every equitation rider has a perfectly produced horse that is the price of a house and that her parents somehow give up their kidneys in order for her to have that horse. Yeah. And I'm sure that there are cases like that, but the kids that I've worked with in the hunters and in the expedition, they're working incredibly hard. They Mm -hmm. are not from money and the horses that they're riding are certainly maybe in a few years will be worth that. Mm -hmm. But at this time they are learning their jobs. So I guess I have a little bit more respect for the juniors I've encountered in the hunters than the juniors I've encountered in dressage. And I, all I can ever talk about is the ones I know. Right. Sure. But in my experience, the hunter kids are working really hard. Mm -hmm. Now I did talk to the winter intensive training program that Lyndon um, sponsors down here in Wellington. And I know those kids work really hard to, to get here. They take care of their own horses while they're here. Mm -hmm. And they are very committed to their goals. So I don't know any of them personally, 
And so I, I should not say that I don't think those kids are working hard. I, I think they are. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the dressage for kids students that you chatted with. I know you kind of talked about the the topic of, you know, like a, a child or a, a junior looking into being a professional and wanting to be a professional, but kind of going through the logistics, especially the financial logistics of making that career work. So my advice to nearly everyone is not to become a professional. Hmm. Because I think if you really like riding and learning and riding for your own goals. Most professionals don't get to do that. And I think that if you get a good job, you are more likely to be able to finance your riding in a way that will produce a better long-term education Hmm. and more happiness and overall success. Yeah, that's a good point. If, If the only job you can imagine yourself doing is this, then I hope that you like cleaning stalls (laughs) and tack. In fact, I just hope you like cleaning a lot and that you are willing to stand with the farrier and the vets and learn to speak their languages because you will need to, Mm -hmm. and that you can be become a respected partner with those people rather than either subservient to or dominant toward them. I I hope you have a lot of money behind you because just getting the sheer number of clients to make this work is very difficult, especially when you're young. I mean, my first advice is go work for someone else. Do right. not go out on your own. I never understand these people who, you know, at 22, having ridden five pre-Saint-Georges, tell me they're professionals. Yeah. I, you know, <laughs> uh, five pre-Saint-Georges on somebody else's horse that was already trained. It takes a long time to become a good professional. And the best way you can do it is under the eye of somebody who's already successful, who will allow you to develop your own skills. And that's going to mean riding horses that aren't fancy. Mm -hmm. The ones that that professional probably doesn't want to ride or wants you to warm up so that person can get on and, and maybe work the weaker points. There's going to be a lot of riding horses that you didn't think you were going to ride. I have ridden enormous numbers of off the track thoroughbreds who I now Mm -hmm. really like. Yeah. But I think if anyone had said you're, you know, your goal is to be a dressage rider and dressage professional and to ride at a high level, you will do 40% of your job will be taking off the track thoroughbreds and helping them to learn to trot better. Yeah. You know, but that's true. A lot of my clients are event riders. They bring horses off the track and I help them. Mm-hmm. And I like those horses. They've got huge grit and determination and character and any horse who can survive the racetrack and come out with the enthusiasm to, to say, yeah, I really want to go do this. That's a great Mm -hmm. horse. Yeah. I think you have to really enjoy working with creatures of all different abilities and ages Mm -hmm. and ideas about work ethic. Totally. (laughs) And I, I think you have to be willing to put a lot of other things on hold. Mm. So And I say this to my graduate students as well. So I'll just be 100% upfront. While you are developing your professional career, it is not a great idea to go have a serious relationship and have children. Hmm. You're going to need to be established before you do that. Because once you have children, you're likely to lose a year to two years of professional time. Mm -hmm. And that's sad and it's real. And particularly the FEI just two years ago, decided that women would no longer lose our FEI ranking immediately. Now we Mm -hmm. get to keep it for six months. Well, okay. 
that's assuming you have an easy pregnancy and that the the minute you produce your child, you can go get back on your back on. and get yeah. back in a CDI. <laughs> I mean, so that means you have the finances and the riders mm-hmm. to keep your Grand Prix horse going. Mm-hmm. It means that, you, I mean, yeah. and clients are not loyal to you. They are loyal to your work. Mm-hmm. And if you can't ride, they're going to leave. Injuries are really common in the sport, as we all know. Right. I have a relatively epic collection of them <laughs> because of those mares who read Thank you, yes. ladies. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but every time you get hurt you run the risk of losing clients. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just the reality of it. I mean, I have a relatively bad injury right now and I'm going to go home and have it looked at. And the possibilities of, you know, this may be a bad summer are there, but I don't know that yet. And I guess I would just encourage people to remember, particularly again, I, I see the juniors in dressage and they've never been hurt. They've only ridden made, you know, really nice made horses that we sell them who are already well-trained in the FEI. Mm-hmm. That is not reality. Hmm. So yeah, yeah I, I, I suggest graduate school and a job. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think that's a really great perspective and something that a lot of young riders need to hear, especially with a lot of them being so engulfed in the sport as a young rider that you see, you know, you see everything, everyone around you becoming a professional. And it's like, oh wait, I'm I'm gonna do that too. But there's a lot of things to consider. So I'm glad that the that those conversations are being had and that you're able to communicate with a lot of young riders in that way. But one last thing I would say, go to college first. It's very hard to go back to university as an adult. Hmm. First of all, you don't have your parents' financial support most of the time. And most parents now are willing to help a kid get through their four years of college anyway. Yeah, that's a good point Um, too. You can ride as a professional. You could ride a lot while you're at college. And you can figure out a little bit more what you want to do. But don't close the door on your education before you've had it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And you can, you can push grad school off a year, two years, five years. Nobody cares, right? Except for the veterinary and medical professions where your science credits will actually go out. They don't stay current. You have to go back and take all that science again. Got it. <laughs> that would not be fun to find out later on. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, say you want, thought you might want to go to law school, mm-hmm. finish your LSAT, you know, decide whether that is really what you want to do maybe take a year off, then look at your, your LSAT scores will still be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Then, then you have options. Yeah. I like the gap year between university and graduate school mm-hmm. more than I like the gap year, the way a lot of kids do it now, juniors do it now, right. where they do a gap year after high school. You're too young to know what your gap is for then. And both mm-hmm. of my nieces have done it. So they're rolling <laughs> their eyes right now. <laughs> I love it. But it's so true. I mean, the difference between ages before undergrad and after undergrad, you've you've had so many life lessons in college in between that time. So then to then make a decision to take a gap year after undergrad really does make a lot of sense. Yeah. And college is great. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's I'm not just saying this because I'm I'm a professor, (laughs) right? But it's where you learn to think. High school is where we teach you to follow rules and memorize things. Mm -hmm. College is where we encourage you to actually learn to think 
And then grad school is where you produce knowledge yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's definitely a good point. As far as your riding going into this next year, pending any possible injuries, what are some goals that you have for yourself with your riding? Well, as I was mentioning earlier, there's this thing where you're riding where you have to be able to sort of quietly shut the doors and then leave just the one door open. Yes. So my primary coach, Bettina Drummond, says that I'm too much of a negotiator. Hmm. And it's great because I can ride difficult horses, but she says I need to learn to close the doors. And I really see now in my my two horses who are at the highest level of the sport where I left too many doors open. <laughs> so yeah. I am a little bit blushing here, but I have to learn to quietly close all the doors, not leave that back, the safe door open. Um, yeah. The just in so case. That's my big goal. <laughs> yeah. The just in case door. So I've been yeah. really working on that these last um, two months with Kidda's Utopia, Andrea Woodner's mare, who's doing the Grand Prix now, because I'm cleaning up some of, I mean, I got mm-hmm. the horse with some issues and she broke my face very badly. So I oh. sort of have, uh, I have some reasons for leaving those doors open, but yeah. now it's time to close them and she's handling it so well. Hmm. So I realized I probably should have done it before. Yeah. Um, oh, that's so funny. So that's a big one for me. Another one, I have two horses who are sort of fourth level pre-sensuals in the barn, you know, that making that transition. Mm-hmm. And I'm really focusing on improving the collection, the engagement, and the impulsion mm-hmm. so that I can, in my riding with those horses, go from fourth level with the goal of the intermediate two, mm-hmm. not get stuck in the swamp of Saint-Georges-I-1 because those two tests really invite a horizontal balance. Yeah. So you have to be really good to ride them vertically. Got it. And so my goal is by focusing on the balance, by focusing on the impulsion with these two younger horses that I'm bringing along, that I can really not make the mistakes that I've made in the past. And that I think other dressage riders are familiar with where we wind up with horses. We try, you know, you think, Oh, well, I just have to start the PNP or I've already started them. This won't be hard, but it turns mm-hmm. out that actually you left too many balance points out. Mm-hmm. And so now you have to go back and, and refresh the balance. So I'm hopeful totally. to do that. Well, <laughs> what are time. some exercises that you utilize at home to kind of tune in on that balance and impulsion? So one of my favorites is a Cavaletti exercise that I think I ripped off from uh, Reiner Klimka, but I changed it a a bit. So on a 20 meter circle between E and B, I do four sets of rails in a fan. So two sets on the center line, two sets at E and B. And the, the inside of them is set to walk. The middle is set to trot and the outside is set to canter. Hmm. And you can do any of these exercises, right? So you can do one 10 meter circle, just over three of them. You can do six rails and then loop out to the other direction. You can, of course, just go in circles all the time. (laughs) You can change direction within the circle. But all of this stuff allows you to shorten and lengthen stride and push the connection through the neck. Because if you raise Hmm. those cavaletti a little bit, the horse has to work and he's 
going to use his back better. Yeah. And it also, for me, allows me to really focus on where the hind leg is traveling. Does the hawk come up under the body or does it always push behind? Hmm. It's pushing behind you're in that danger zone, right? That's not going to be an I2 horse. That's a horse who's still lacking the carrying potential. Definitely. So that is one I use a lot. And I like to set the canter rails Instead of at nine feet, which is, I know, I mean, there's a section of it, obviously that's going to be nine feet, but at the very edge, it's 10 mm-hmm. between them so that you can just push a little bit more in the step. Then you can half halt a little bit more Then yeah. you can push a little bit more. You can also obviously move your horse laterally in and out. And if you want to be quite clever, you can passage through one section, hmm. you can trot through the next, you can canter through the next, and you can lengthen the canter through wow. the next one. That's awesome. That's do probably you, my favorite. <laughs> do, you feel, do you feel like as a dressage rider, are you, are, is it a little bit more rare for other dressage riders to be utilizing Cavaletti in this way? Because I, I love Cavaletti as a hunter jumper trainer, but it, do you, does it go across to the dressage discipline as well? I certainly know people who do it. Maybe we are all people who have backgrounds in jumping. But uh, I, yeah, I mean, I think because of Reiner Klimka and then his daughter, of course, Ingrid, who's a superstar of eventing yeah. and dressage and has, has done extensive video work in Cavaletti. I feel like a lot of dressage people use them. I see them using them maybe more for things, specific things. Like I'm going to teach this horse to massage here. Sure. Right. If you, yeah. if you lift the poles and make them a little bit close together, the horse will pretty much naturally yeah, well. go there. So yeah, I, I see they're usually Cavaletti and dressage people's rings. Nice. Yeah. I've, I've never set up that exercise that you were describing, but that sounds awesome. I like, I I like how there's so many different possibilities with it. Yeah. You never get bored. Yeah. And it's also quite fun. And if you don't have, you know, Cavaletti with the X's on each end, Mm -hmm. you can put them up on blocks on opposite sides. So the horse actually has to think a little bit more about which side, you know, say you have a horse who's weak on the left hind. Uh Okay. Well, don't always work the right hind bit. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> the horse will always choose to work her strong leg. She's Absolutely. always going to do that. So you can raise that left side and really say, no, you got to mm-hmm. go through it, honey. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Love that. Well, Allison, thank you so much for taking the time. I love your mindset behind the sport and your career. It's really commendable. So thank you so much. And I wish you all the best. Thank you very much for taking the time and I appreciate this conversation. It was good fun. All right. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you next week.